Chapter 5 That little Arliss, if he wasn't a mess, from the time he'd grown up big enough to get out of the cabin, he'd made a practice of trying to catch and keep every living thing that ran, flew, jumped, or crawled. Every night before Mama let him go to bed, <clears throat> she'd make little Arliss empty his pockets of whatever he'd captured during the day. Generally, it would be a tangled-up mess of grasshoppers and worms and praying bugs and little rusty tree lizards. One time, he brought in a horned toad that got so mad he swelled out round and flat as a Mexican tortilla and bled at the eyes. Sometimes it was stuffed like a young bird that had fallen out of its nest before it could fly, or a green-speckled spring frog or a striped water snake. And once he turned out of his pocket... <clears throat> A wadded-up baby copperhead that nearly threw Mama into spasms. We never did figure out why the snake hadn't bitten him, but Mama took no more chances on snakes. She switched Arliss hard for catching that snake. Then she made me spend better than a week taking him out and teaching him to throw rocks and kill snakes. Well, that was alright with little Arliss. <clears throat> if Mama wanted him to kill his snakes first, he'd kill them, but that still didn't keep him from sticking them in his pockets along with everything else he'd captured that day. The snakes might be stinking by the time Mama called on him to empty his pockets, but they'd be dead. Then after the yellow dog came, little Arliss started catching even bigger game. Like cottontail rabbits and chaparral birds and a baby possum that sold and laid like dead for the rest first several hours until he finally decided that Arliss wasn't going to hurt him. Of course, it was old Yeller that was doing the catching. He'd run the game down and turn it over to little Arliss. Then little Arliss could come in and tell Mama a big fib about how he caught it himself. I watched them one day when they caught a blue catfish out of Birdsong Creek. The fish had fed out into the water so shallow that his top fin was sticking out. About the time I saw it, old Yeller and little Arliss did too. And they made a run at it. The fish went scooting away toward deeper water. Only Yeller was too fast for him. <clears throat> he pounced on the fish and shut his big mouth down over it and went romping to the bank where he dropped it down on the grass and let it flop. And here came little Arliss to fall on it like I guess he'd been doing everywhere else. The minute he, <clears throat> caught, he got his hands on it, the fish finned him and he went to crying. But he wouldn't turn the fish loose. He just grabbed it up and went running and squalling toward the house where he gave the fish to Mama. His hands were all bloody by then where the fish had finned him. They swelled up and got mighty sore. Not even a mesquite thorn hurts as bad as a sharp... Fin, fish fin when it's run deep into your hand. But as soon as Mama had wrapped his hands in a poultice of mashed up prickly pear root to draw out the poison, little Arliss forgot all about his hurt. And that night, when we ate the fish for supper, he told the biggest windy I'd ever heard about how he'd dived way down deep into the deep hole under the rocks and dragged that fish out and nearly got drowned before he could swim to the bank with it. But when I tried to tell Mama what had really happened, she wouldn't let me. Now, this is, our, this is little Arliss's story, she said. You let him tell it the way he wants to. I told Mama then, I said, Mama, that old yellow dog is going to make the biggest liar in Texas out of little Arliss. But Mama just laughed at me. Like she always laughed at little Arliss's big windies after she'd gotten off of where she, he couldn't hear her. She said for me to let little Arliss alone. She said that if he ever told a bigger whopper than the ones I used to tell, she had yet to hear it. Well, I hushed then. If Mama wanted little Arliss to grow up to be the biggest liar in Texas, I guess it wasn't any of my business. All of which, I figured, is what led up to little Arliss's catching the bear. 
I think Mama had let him tell so many big yarns about his catching live game that he'd begun to believe them himself. When it happened, I was down the creek a ways, <clears throat> splitting rails to fix up the yard fence where the bulls had torn it down. I'd been down there since dinner, working in a stand of tall, slim post oaks. I'd chop down a tree and trim off the branches as far as I had wanted, then cut away the rest of the top. And after that, I'd start splitting the log. I'd split the log by dividing steel wedges into the wood. I'd start at the big end and hammer in a wedge with the backside of my axe. This would start a little split running lengthwise on the log. Then I'd take a second wedge and drive it into this split. This would split the log further along and, at the same time, loosen the first wedge. I'd then knock the first wedge loose and move it up to the front of the second one. Driving one wedge ahead of the other like that, I could finally split a log in two halves. Then I'd go to work on the halves, splitting them in part. That way, from each log, I'd come out with four rails. Swinging that chopping axe was sure hard work. The sweat poured off of me. My back muscles ached. The axe got so heavy I could hardly swing it. My breath got harder and harder to breathe. An hour before sundown, I was worn down to a nub. It seemed like I couldn't hit another lick. Papa could have lasted till past sundown, but I didn't see how I could. I shouldered my axe and started toward the cabin, trying to think of some excuse to tell Mama to keep her from knowing I was played clear out. Well, that's when I heard little Arliss scream. <clears throat> well, little Arliss was a screamer by nature. He'd scream when he was happy, and he'd scream when he was mad, and... A lot of times he'd scream just to hear himself make a noise. Generally, we paid no more mind to his screaming than we did to the gobble of a wild turkey. But this time it was different. The second I heard his screaming, I felt my heart flop clear over. This time I knew little Arliss was in real trouble. I tore out up the trail leading toward the cabin. A minute before I'd been so tired out with my rail splitting that I couldn't have struck a trot. But now I raced through the tall trees in that creek bottom covering ground like a scared wolf. Little Arliss's second scream when it came was louder and shriller and more frantic sounding than the first. Mixed with it with a whimpering crying sound that I knew didn't come from him. It was a sound I heard before and I seemed like I ought to know what it was, but right then I couldn't place it. Then from way off to one side came a sound that <clears throat> I would have recognized anywhere. It was the coughing roar of a charging bear. I'd just heard it once in my life, and that was the time Mama had shot and wounded a hog-killing bear, and Papa had had to finish it off with a knife to keep it from getting at her. My heart went to pushing it up into my throat, nearly choking off my wind. I strained for every lick of speed I could get out of my running legs. I didn't know what sort of fix little Arliss had gotten himself into, but I knew that it had to do with a mad bear, which was enough. The way that late sun slanted through the trees had the trail all cross-banded with streaks of bright light and dark shade. I ran through these bright and dark patches so fast that the changing light nearly blinded me. Then suddenly I raced out into the open where I could see ahead. And what I saw sent a chill clear through the marrow of my bones. There was little Arliss, down in that spring hole again. He was lying half in and half out of the water, holding on to the hind leg of a little black bear cub, no bigger than a small coon. The bear cub was out on the bank, whimpering and crying and clawing the rocks with all three of his other feet trying to pull away, but little Arliss was holding on for all he was worth, scared now and screaming his head off, too scared to let go. Well, how come the bear cub ever to prowl close enough for little Arliss to grab him, I don't know. And why he didn't turn on him and bite loose, I couldn't figure out either, unless he was like little Arliss and he was too scared to think. 
But all that didn't matter now. What mattered was the bear cub's mama. She heard the cries of her baby and she was coming to save him. She was coming so fast that she had to brush popping and breaking as she crashed through it and over it. I could see her black heavy figure piling out down over across the slant of the far side of the Birdsong Creek. She was roaring mad and ready to kill. And worst of all, I could see that I'd never get there in time. Mama couldn't either. She heard little Arliss too. And here she came from the cabin running down the slant toward the spring, screaming at Arliss, telling him to turn the bear club cup loose. But little Arliss wouldn't do it. All he'd do was hang on with that hind leg and let it one shrill shriek after another as fast as he could and suck in a breath. Now the she-bear was charging across the shallows in the creek. She was knocking sheets of water high in the bright sun, charging with her fur up and her long teeth bared, filling the canyon with that awful coughing roar. And no matter how fast Mama ran or how fast I ran, the she-bear was going to get there first. I think I nearly went blind then, picturing what was going to happen to little Arliss. I know I opened my mouth to scream and not any sound came out. Then just as the bear went lunging up the creek bank toward little Arliss and her cub, a flash of yellow came streaking out of the brush. It was that big yellow dog. He was soaring like a mad bull. He wasn't one-third as big and heavy as the she-bear, but when she piled into her from the one side, he rolled her clear off her feet. They went down in a wild, roaring tangle of twisting bodies and scrambling and slashing fangs. As I raced past them, I saw the bear lunge up to stand on her hind feet like a man while she clawed at the body of the yellow dog hanging to her throat. I didn't wait to see more. Without ever checking my stride, I ran in and jerked little Arliss loose from the cub. I grabbed him by the wrist and yanked him up out of the water and slung him toward Mama like he was a half-empty sack of corn. I screamed at Mama, Grab him, Mama! Grab him! Grab him and run! Then I swung my chopping axe high and wheeled aiming to cave in the she-bear's head with the first lick. But I never did strike. I didn't need to. Old Yeller hadn't let the bear get close enough. He couldn't handle her. She was too big and strong for that. She'd stand there on her hind feet, hunched over, and take a roaring swing at him with one of those big front claws. She'd slap him head over heels. She'd knock him so far that it didn't look like he was possibly going to get back there before she charged him again, but he always did. He'd hit the ground rolling, yelling his head off with his pain of the blow, but somehow he'd always roll to his feet, and here he'd come again, ready to tie into her for another round. And I stood there with my axe raised, watching them for a long moment. Then from up toward the house, I heard Mama calling, Come away from there, Travis! Hurry, son, run! Well, that spooked me. Up until then, I'd been ready to tie into that bear myself. Now suddenly, I was scared out of my wits again. I ran toward the cabin. But like it was, Old Yeller nearly beat me there. I didn't see it, of course, but Mama said that the minute Old Yeller saw we were all in the clear and out of danger, he threw the fight to that she-bear and lit out for the house. The bear chased him for a little piece, but at that rate, Old Yeller was leaving her behind. Mama said it looked like the bear was backing up. But if the big yeller dog was scared or hurt or any way when he came dashing in, into the house, he didn't show it. He sure didn't show it like we all did. Little Arliss had hushed his screaming, but he was trembling all over and clinging to Mama like he'd never let her go. And Mama was sitting in the middle of the floor, holding him up close and crying like she'd never stop. <clears throat> and me? I was close to crying myself. The old Jeller, though, all he did was come bounding in to jump on us and lick us in the face and bark so loud that there inside the cabin, the noise nearly made us deaf. The way he acted, you might have thought the bear fight hadn't been anything more than a rowdy romp, that we'd all taken part in just for the fun of it. 
Chapter 6. Little Arlo's got all, all mixed up in that bear fight. I guess I've been looking on him like most boys look on their little brothers. I liked him alright, but I didn't have a lot of use for him. And with all his <clears throat> playing in our drinking water and getting in the way of my chopping axe and howling his head off and chunking me with rocks when he got mad, it didn't seem to me like he was hardly worth the bother putting up with. But that day when I saw him in the spring so helpless against the angry she-bear, I learned different. I knew then that I loved him as much as I did Mom and Papa. Maybe in some ways even more, a little bit more. So it was only natural for me to come to love the dog that saved him. After that, I couldn't do enough for old Yeller. What if he was a big, ugly, meat-stealing rascal? What if he did fall over and yell bloody murder every time I looked crossways at him? What if he had run off when he ought to have helped us with the fighting bulls? None of that made a lick of difference now. He'd pitched in and saved little Harless when I couldn't possibly have done it, and, well, that was enough for me. I petted him and made him over until he was wiggling all over to show how happy he was. I felt mean about how I'd treated him and did everything I could to let him know. I searched his feet and pulled out long mesquite thorn that had been embedded between his toes. I held him down and had Mama hand me a stick with a coal of fire on it so I could burn off three big bloated ticks that I found inside one of his ears. I washed him with lye soap and water and then rubbed salty bacon grease into his hair all over to rout the fleas. And that night after dark, when he sneaked into bed with me and little Arliss, <laughs> I let him sleep there and never said a word about it to Mama. I took him and little Arliss squirrel hunting the next day. It was the first time I'd ever taken little Arliss on any kind of hunt. He was such a noisy pest that I had always figured he'd just scare off the game. As it turned out, he was just as noisy and pesky as I'd figured. He'd follow along, keeping quiet like I told him, until he saw maybe a pretty butterfly floating around in the air. Then he'd set up a yell you could have heard a mile off and go chasing after the butterfly. Of course, he couldn't catch it, but he would just keep yelling at me to come help him. <clears throat> then he'd get mad because I wouldn't, and he'd yell still louder. Or maybe he'd stop to turn over a flat rock, and then he'd be standing yellow and yelling at me to come back and look at the yellow ants and centipedes and crickets and stinging scorpions that went scurrying away hunting new hiding places. Once he got hung up in some briars and yelled till I came back to get him. Another time he fell down and struck his elbow on a rock and didn't say a word about it for several minutes until he saw blood seeping out of the cut of his arm. Then he stood and screamed like he was being burnt with a hot iron. With that much racket going on I knew we'd scare off all the game clear out of the country, which I guess we did. All but the squirrels. They took to the trees where they could hide from us. But I was lucky enough to see which tree one squirrel went up, so I put some on little Arliss's racket to use. I sent him in a circle around the tree, bleeding on the grass and bushes with a stick, while I stood waiting, and sure enough, the squirrel got to watching little Arliss and forgot me. He kept turning around the tree limb to keep it between him and little Arliss, until he was on my side in plain sight. I shot him out of the tree the first shot. And after that... Old Jeller caught on to the what game we were after. He went to work then, trailing and treeing the squirrels that little Arliss was scaring up off the ground. And from then on, with Yeller to tree the squirrels and little Arliss to turn them on to tree limbs, we had pickings. It <laughs> wasn't but a little bit till I'd shot five, maybe more than enough to make us a good squirrel fry for supper. A week later, Old Yeller helped me catch a wild gobbler that I'd have lost without him. 
We had gone up to the corn patch to pick a bait of black-eyed peas, and I was packing my gun just as we <clears throat> got up to the slab rock fence that Papa had built around the corn patch. I looked over and spotted this gobbler doing our pea-picking for us. The pea pods were still green yet, most of them no further along than snapping size. This made them hard for the gobbler to shell, but he was working away at it, pecking and scratching so hard that he was raising a big dust out in the field. Why, that old rascal, Mama said. He's just clawing those pea vines all to pieces. Hush, Mama, don't scare him. I lifted my gun and laid the barrel across the top of the rock fence. I'll have him ready for the pot in just a minute. It wasn't a long shot, and I had sighted in, dead to rights. I aimed to stick a bullet right where his wings hinged to his back. I was holding my breath and already squeezing off when little Arliss, who had gotten behind, came running up. Why'd you shoot that, Travis? He yelled at the top of his voice. Why'd you shoot that? Well, that made me and the gobbler both jump. The gun fired, and I saw the gobbler go down. But a second later, he was up again, streaking through the tall corn, dragging a broken wing. For a second, I was so mad at little Arliss, I could have wrung his neck like a frying chicken's. I said, Arliss, why can't you keep your mouth shut? You made me lose that gobbler. Well, that little Arliss didn't have enough sense to know what I was mad about. Right away, he puckered up and went to crying and leaking tears all over the place. Some of them splattered clear down on his bare feet, making dark splotches in the dust that covered them. And I always did say that when little Arliss cried, he could shed more tears faster than any crier I ever saw. Wait a minute, Mama put in. I don't think you've lost your gobbler yet. Look yonder. She pointed, and I looked, and there was old Yeller jumping the rock fence and racing toward the pea patch. He ran up to where I'd knocked the gobbler down. He circled the place one time, smelling the ground and wiggling his stub tail. Then he took off through the corn the same way the gobbler went, yelling like I was beating him with a stick. When he barked treat a couple of minutes later, it was in the woods the other side of the corn patch. We went to him. We found him jumping at the gobbler that had run up the stooping live oak and was perched there panting just waiting for me. So in spite of the fact that little Arliss had caused me to make a bad shot, we had us a real sumptuous supper that night. Roast turkey, cornbread dressing, and watercress and wild onions that little Arliss and I found growing down at the creek next to the water. But when we tried to feed old Yeller some of the turkey on account of us saving us from losing it, he wouldn't eat. He licked the meat and wiggled his stubbed tail to show how grateful he was, but he didn't swallow down more than a bite or two. Well, that puzzled Mama and me, because when we remembered back, we realized that well, he hadn't really been eating anything we'd fed him for the last several days. And he was fat, and with hair as slick and shiny as a dog eating three square meals a day. Mama shook her head. Well, if I didn't know any better, she said, I'd say that dog was sucking eggs. But I've got three hens sitting, one with bitty chickens, and I'm getting more eggs from the rest of them than I've gotten since last fall. So he can't be robbing the nest. Well, we wondered some about the old jeller was living on, but didn't worry about it. That is, not until the day Bud Searcy dropped by the cabin to see how we were making out. Bud Searcy was a red-faced man with a bulging middle, who liked to visit around the settlement and sit and talk hard times and spit tobacco juice all over the place and wait for somebody to ask him to dinner. I never did have a lot of use for him, and my folks didn't either. Mama said he was shiftless. She said that the reason the rest of the men left him at home to sort of look after the women folk and kids while they were gone on the cow drive. She said the men knew that if they took Bud Searcy along, they'd never get to Kansas before the steers were dead with old age. 
It would take seriously that long to get through visiting and eating with everybody between Salt Licks and Abilene. But he did have a little white-haired granddaughter that I sort of liked. She was 11 and different from most girls. She would hang around and watch what boys did, like showing how high they could climb in a tree or how far they could throw a rock or how fast they could swim or how good they could shoot. But she never wanted to mix in or try to take over and boss things. She just went along and watched and didn't say much, and the only thing I had against her was her eyes. They were big, solemn brown eyes and right pretty to look at. Only when she fixed them on me, it always seemed like they looked clear through me and saw everything I was thinking. That always made me sort of jumpy, so that when I could, I never would look right straight at her. Her name was Lisbeth, and she came with her grandpa the day he visited us. They came riding up on the old shad-bellied pony that didn't look like he'd had fill of corn in a coon's age. She rode behind her grandpa's saddle, holding to his belt in the back, and her white hair was all curly and rippling in the sun. Trotting behind them was a blue-ticked she-dog that I always figured was one of Belle's pups. Old Yeller went to the bay them as they rode up. I noticed right off that he didn't go about it like he really meant business. He really... His yelling bay sounded a lot more like he was just barking because he figured that that's what he was expected to do. And the first time I hollered at him, telling him to dry up all that racket, he hushed. Which surprised me, as hard-headed as he generally was. But by the time Mama had come to the door and told Circe and Elizabeth to get down and come right in, Old Yeller had started a romp with the blue-ticked female dog. Elizabeth slipped to the ground and stood staring at me with those big, solemn eyes while her grandpa dismounted. Circe told Mama that he believed he wouldn't come in the house. He said that as hot as the day was, he figured he liked it better sitting in the dog run. So Mama had me bring out four cowhide bottom chairs. Circe picked the one I always liked to sit in best. He got out a twist of tobacco and bit off a chew big enough to bulge his cheek and went to chewing and talking and spitting juice right where we'd all be bound to step in it and pack it in around on the bottoms of our feet. First he asked Mama if we were making out all right, and Mama said we were. Then he told her that he'd been left to look after all the families while the men were gone, a mighty heavy responsibility that was nearly working him to death, but that he was glad to do it. He said for Mama to remember that if the least little thing went wrong, and she was to get in touch with him right away. And, of course, Mama said she would. Then he leaned his chair back against the cabin wall and went to telling what was all going on around the settlement. He told about how dry the weather was and how he looked for all the corn crops to fail and the settlement folks to be scraping the bottoms of their meal barrels long before spring. He told how the cows were going dry and the gardens were failing. He told how Jed Simpson's boy Rosal was sitting at the turkey roost waiting for a shot when a fox came right up and tried to jump on him. And Rosal had to club it death with his gun butt. This sure looked like a case of hydrophobia to Circe, as anybody knew that no fox in his right mind was going to jump on a hunter. Which reminded him of, of an uncle of his that got mad dog bit down in the piney woods of East Texas. <clears throat> this was way back when Circe was a little boy. As soon as the dog bit him, the man knew he was bound to die. So he went and got a big long chain and tied one end around the bottom of the tree and the other end to one of his legs. And right there he stayed till the sickness got him, and he lost his mind. He slobbered at the mouth and moaned and screamed and ran at his wife and children trying to catch them and bite them. Only, of course, the chain around his leg held him back, which was the reason he chained himself to the tree in the first place. 
And right there, chained to that tree, he finally died, and they buried him under the same tree. But seriously, sure hope that we wouldn't have an outbreak of hydrophobia and salt licks and all die before the men got back from Kansas. Then he talked about a panther that had caught and killed one of Joe Anson's colts and how the Anson boys had put their dogs on the trail. They ran the panther into the cave and Jeff Anson followed in where the dogs had more sense than to go and gotten pretty badly panther mauled for his troubles, but he did get the panther. Seriously talked till dinner time, said not a word all through dinner, and then went back to talking as quick as he had swallowed down the last bite. He told how some strange varmint that wasn't a coyote, possum, skunk, or a coon had recently started robbing the settlement blind. Or maybe it was even somebody. Nobody could tell for sure. All they knew was that they were losing meat out of their smokehouses, eggs out of their hen's nests, and sometimes even whole pans of cornbread that the women folks had set out to cool. Ike Fuller had been barbecuing some meat over the open pit and left it for a minute to go get a drink of water and came back to find that three or four pound chunk of beef ribs had disappeared like it had gone up in smoke. Salt Lake folks were getting pretty riled up about it. Seriously said, I guessed it would go hard of whatever or whoever was doing the raiding if they ever learned who it was. Well, listening to this, I got an uneasy feeling. The feeling got worse a minute later when Elizabeth motioned me to follow her down to the spring. We walked clear down the, there with Old Yeller and the Blue Tick following with us before she finally looked up at me and said, It's him. What do you mean? I said. I mean, it's your big yellow dog. I saw him. Do what? I asked. Steal that bait of ribs, she said. I saw him get a bunch of eggs, too, from one of our nests. I stopped and looked straight at her, and she looked straight back at me, and I could, couldn't stand it. With the, <laughs> I had to look down. But I'm not going to tell, she said. I didn't believe her. Well, I bet you do, I said. No, I won't. She said, shaking her head. I wouldn't, even before I knew he was your dog. Why? Because Miss Prissy is going to have pups. Miss Prissy. Well, that's the name of my dog, and she's going to have pups, and your dog will be their papa. And I won't want their papa to get shot. And I stared at her again, and again I had to look down. I wanted to thank her, but I didn't know the right words. So I fished around in my pocket and brought out an Indian arrowhead that I would found the day before, and I gave that to her. She took it and stared at it for a little bit with her eyes shining and then shoved it deep in her long pockets she'd sewn to her dress. I won't never, never tell, she said, then whirled and tore out for the house, running as fast as she could. I went down and sat by the spring a while. It seemed like I liked Bud seriously a lot better than I ever had before, even if he did talk too much and spit tobacco juice all over the place. But I was still bothered. If Elizabeth had caught Old Yeller stealing stuff at the settlement, then somebody else might too. And if they did, they were sure liable to shoot them. The family might put up with one of its own dogs stealing from them, but if it, if it was a good dog. But for a dog that left home to steal from everybody else, well, I didn't see much chance for him if he ever got caught. After Bud Searcy had eaten a hearty supper and talked a while longer, he finally rode off home with Lisbeth riding behind him. I went then and gathered the eggs and held back three. I called Old Yeller off from the house and broke the eggs on a flat rock, right under his nose, and tried to get him to eat them. But he wouldn't. He acted like he'd never heard tell that eggs were fit to eat. All he'd do was stand there and wiggle his tail and try to lick me in the face. It made me mad. You thieving rascal. I ought to get a club and break your back in 14 different places. But I didn't really mean it. And I didn't really say it loud and ugly. 
I knew that if I did, he'd fall over and start yelling like he was dying. And there I'd be in a fight with little Arliss again. Well, when they shoot you, I'm going to laugh, I told him. <laughs> but I knew I wouldn't. 